0: To begin, tell a story. Uh, I heard from a friend who attended a banquet where the theologian Stanley Haawass gave a speech. "If you know anything about Stanley Haawass, you don't need to. But he's a pacifist, but he is no like shrinking violent. He is quite cantankerous. And in this speech, he said you Calvinists, to an audience I think was primarily Calvinists, he said, you Calvinists, you got your doctrine so well systematized and can recite proof texts to defend it all, but somehow you managed to read the Gospels and not commit to nonviolence. Anyway, and he went on like that for a while. When he finally returned to his seat, to a smattering of applause The evening's MC took the podium and said, Well, that was interesting. And with that, Hauerwas bolted up from his seat and returned to the podium and said, Do you know what I can't stand? I can't stand being told I'm interesting. I don't care if I'm interesting. I'm not here to interest you. I'm here to make you faithful. And with that, he sat down again and finished his dessert. Well, Paul feels a little bit like Hauerwas over the church in Corinth. He poured his heart and soul into founding that little community. And after he moves on, these other missionaries come in, who he calls super apostles. They've come in and they've sort of taken the podium. And they're saying to the church, well, how about that Paul? He's interesting. Now, let me set the they're to, let, me, let me let me let's straighten out a few things. And this has left the Corinthians kind of confused. Is that all Paul was? Interesting? What makes these guys different? What makes them better? Well, the super apostles were only too willing to explain to the Corinthians what made them better. You know, they, they trot out their credentials. They had letters of recommendation. And, and, and it was sort of typical of traveling speakers in that day to do that sort of thing, to, to do a little boasting. There was even sort of a form that the boasting would take. Uh, this is from a speech by Caesar Augustus. He says, twice, I received triumphal ovations. Three times I received the cural triumphs. Twenty times and one did I receive the appellation of the imperator. You know, it's sort of like you had to be your own baseball card. You had to carry your stats and share them. Let people know why you were worth listening to. And these super super apostles know how to wow an audience. But the Corinthians want to be fair and give Paul a chance to respond, and so they write him. And based on what Paul's response, we get a sense that their letter must went something like this: "Hey, Paul, what are your stats? You never talked about your credentials. Why not? Because these guys seem pretty legit. Well." this letter is sort of Paul's Stanley Wass moment. It's Paul shoving his dessert aside, stopping up to the podium, grabbing the mic and saying, all right now, listen here. Paul is not here to interest you or to impress you with his resume. Paul's here to make you faithful, not to him or any person, no matter how well credentialed. Paul's mission is to promote no one but Christ. To promote nothing but what God is accomplishing in and through Christ's death and resurrection. So, says Paul, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. About the God who turns foolish things on their head, who manifests divine power through weakness. And in chapter 11, Paul pulls out his baseball card, and Caesar-like recites his stats. Five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked for a night and a day and was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked, and besides other things, I am under daily pressure because of my anxiety from all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. It's quite a baseball card. I befriended uh, this guy named Mike Cosper uh, at a worship conference years ago. And he served at a church in Louisville. He now creates podcasts for Christianity Today, the magazine. This spring, he posted on Facebook and Twitter a trailer for a multi-episode podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Now, I have not spoken with Mike in years, but this interested me. After all, the last time I talked with Mike was when he and and others, uh, we all went out for dinner after the conference, and we talked about Mars Hill, specifically its pastor, Mark Driscoll. Mike actually knew him, shared things, and he shared things about him that night that sort of blew my mind. So I was curious. 26 year old Mark Driscoll started Mars Hill in 1996 in Seattle. By 1999, it was three, there were 350 people in attendance which was remarkable because it didn't happen because Mark followed the model that was laid out for megachurches, you know, the church growth movement. He did none of the things that they said to do. His sermons weren't short. They weren't even friendly. And they weren't soft on doctrine, which is what most of those churches did. No, he preached five-point Calvinism for an hour. And he was harshly critical of megachurch pastors like uh, Saddlebacks, Rick Warren, and uh, Willow Creek's Bill Hybels. Although probably the most frequent target of his scorn was uh, unmanly men. In part because, you know, this was because they'd been uh, fed a, quote, limp-wristed Richard Simmons hippie Jesus. And for for Driscoll, salvation is about not getting the hell you deserve, and not being such a wuss. And his message resonated. In, of all places, you know, liberal Seattle. And funding started to pour in and continue to grow. In fact, at its peak, Mars Hill reached about 16,000 people. You know, listen, I happen to be listening to this podcast while I just finished a book by the historian Kristen DeMay. It's an excellent book called Jesus and John Wayne. And she talks about Mark Driscoll in that book and says, and basically the argument is, you know, what Driscoll's doing isn't all that new. She gives a history of America, uh, American Christianity, specifically American Uh, evangelical Christianity over the last 100 years or so, and it shows that there's this ongoing tendency within the church to try to remake Jesus into the image of John Wayne. She shows that the, the Cold War was a motivator for this, because we believe that the best defense against the godless Soviets was to be God-fearing Americans. And what God wanted was manly men and womanly women. And there's this idea that if you deviate from that, well, then the commies win. Now, of course, Cold War ended, but then we had 9-11. And after watching those towers fall and re-watching it over and over, sort of like we got a little angrier a little more aggressive. I don't know if you remember, but there was that period where everything was being advertised as extreme, right? I mean, it was like extreme mouthwash, you know, or antacid tablets that don't just reduce acid. They beat it to a bloody pulp, right? I mean, it was, that's when you had the XFL, uh, and everything was, yeah, it was all this extreme stuff. Now, I love our country, and I don't say it just because it's the 4th of July, but because I love our country. But we are a lot like Corinth. We love big and flashy and powerful. We love celebrity. We love manly men. But Paul. Paul wants to talk about weakness. Not just talk about it, boast about it. Feels almost un-American. Now, apparently, in addition to everything else that these super apostles uh, trot out as, uh, to, uh, as their credentials, they also talk about having had visions and revelations. So Paul feels obligated to respond to this, too. And we're going to read the first part of what he says. And I just want to say it, it's weird. All right. And I. I'm warning you because uh, you're going to think, what is he talking about? I think it's weird by design. All right, so here we'll turn to page uh, 822. Start at verse 2, and then we're going to go to verse 6. All right, so if you have your pew Bible, it's page 822. He starts with this. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. I get, like I said, it's strange. Paul knows a man. I think by the end, you're like, I think, I think he's talking about himself, but, but it's unclear. And, and he talks about a third heaven, and we're like, where's that? What is that? And then that awkward in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. I mean, why that whole qualification? And then God said something, but he can't say. Well, why is that? I mean, is, is the first rule of third heaven the same as the first rule of fight club? You don't talk about third heaven? But again, I think it's weird by design. Uh, the, the, the philosopher Elaine Scari, she wrote a book called uh, Beauty, no, beauty and, and the Idea of Being Just. And she argues that when you encounter beauty, What it does is it produces in you, that's a lovely phrase, uh, blessed self-forgetfulness. You forget your ego, right? You just become absorbed in the beauty before you. And you don't see the object of your beauty as having value because it can do something for you. It doesn't have to do anything, it just has to be doesn't need to make him money. it money. Its value is it's simply existing. Whatever Paul experienced in his revelation, it seems to me it was beautiful. And now he's asked to, to talk about it in a way that's supposed to boost his standing, to reduce it to some sort of merit badge he puts on his chest. You tell, he doesn't want to. He'll talk about it, but talk about it vaguely. And it's not particularly satisfying. So Paul goes on, you want, you, like, do you want something more specific? Yeah, Paul, I want something more specific. I don't know what you're talking about there. Okay, I'll be more specific. All right, here we'll pick it up again. Then he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul gets more specific about his revelation. He has a thorn in his flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment him. And there are lots of theories, like, what, what, even here, I mean, it is a little abstract, but what, like, what is he referring to? Is it a physical ailment? Um, is it, uh, is it about, or is it, is it external? Is it somebody, is it these missionaries who keep undermining his work? We don't know. We just know that Paul found it very debilitating. It keeps him from doing and accomplishing all the things he wants to accomplish. And he figures, if this would just be not be a part of my life, I could be a lot more effective. So this prayer that Paul's is offering to God, it should be a no-brainer. He brings it before the Lord three times. You know, do, do me, do yourself a favor. Do your kingdom a favor and remove this thing from me. And the response to this effort is. A revelation from God. A vision. The kind of thing super apostles brag about. And that revelation from the Lord is this. No. No, I'm not going to remove it. And not because God doesn't understand or thinks Paul's making a big deal out of nothing. Nope. God can see that Paul is limited by it. God says no, because God is not limited by it. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is made perfect in weakness. And so there it is again. Weakness. About the least appropriate word for a 4th of July Sunday there is. Unless you're talking about a weakness for bacon on your cheeseburger. You know, it isn't wrong to talk about strengths and gifts and successes. But we don't do ourselves any favors by pretending such things are the whole story. To refuse to acknowledge weakness does not make the weakness disappear. I mentioned that that podcast is called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill." You know, Driscoll liked to refer to Mars Hill and its mission as a bus. And say, you can get on the bus or you can get thrown under it. And even as more and more got on the bus, more and more were thrown under. Eventually, Driscoll's bullying and verbal abuse could not be ignored. The elders asked him to step away and pursue a plan for restoration. Driscoll claimed that this was a trap and he resigned. Three months later, Mars Hill and all 15 of its campuses closed their doors. Now, those of you who've been here the last few weeks may detect a theme, certainly between this week and last. Here again, we're talking about power. You might wonder if this is intentional whether there's some sort of larger agenda at work here. There isn't, at least not one I'm consciously aware of. right? The texts that I've chosen for the last several weeks have been texts assigned by the lectionary. So I have no reason to believe that there's a need to address you know, some power trip, some abuse of power, or something like that. Um, You know, despite sharing a first name and being, I think, a year younger, I don't see myself as having much in common with Mark Driscoll. Uh, And if Mars Hill's a bus, I guess that would make us, what, a fiat? A skateboard? Something. However, this hardly makes the issues irrelevant. After all, Paul is at pains to make clear the gospel isn't about flexing our muscle and asserting our power. It's about a God whose grace is sufficient. A God who turns power on its head for when we are weak then we are strong. There is therefore a source of profound encouragement to be had in these verses, particularly for skateboarders on a highway overrun with buses. God is not waiting for us become a force to be reckoned with before we can become useful God is not waiting for us to get all our ducks in a row and work out all the bugs God does not need us to be who we once were in order to become what God is calling us to be no because God's grace is sufficient in fact something remarkable can happen not despite our weaknesses but through our weaknesses It is precisely in the midst of weakness that God can more fully demonstrate divine power. That's not just wishful thinking. That's not just a consolation for uh, weaklings and losers. It's what lies at the heart of the gospel. When the Almighty, the creator of heavens and earth, determined to intervene and do battle with sin and death, it began by being pushed through a birth canal. It began by becoming as helpless as a baby. And it was completed when he became so weak, he no longer had it in him to take another breath. Weakness, powerlessness, surrender, death those who place their hopes on him simply request to take his body away and give it a decent burial take it away don't let it hang there like a thorn in the flesh like a messenger from satan but it is precisely there in that weakness that the mighty power of god has been made known My grace is sufficient for you. In our weakness we are made strong. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.